0: to My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. Each episode, we look at the topics that can make our working lives difficult and explore how you can take action to improve things. We want to help you move from simply surviving work to thriving at work. My Pocket Psych is brought to you by Work Life Psych, a team of workplace psychologists who are experts in coaching, training and structured development programs. You can find out more about how we help people grow and develop at work by visiting our website, worklifepsych.com Hello and welcome to episode 54 of My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. I'm Dr. Richard McKinnon and I'm joined by my co-host, as always, Pilar Ortiz. Pilar, how are you?
1: I am very well, Richard. Hello, listeners.
0: <laughs> We're back together, Yay! Uh, the, t- the two of us. And we have a guest this time around. Uh, So Pilar and I are going to introduce a concept and then what will follow is an interview with um, another one of our guests uh, who's an expert in this space to give us a little bit more insight and a little bit more detail on the topic. So what I want to do is remind everyone that this is part of a series of episodes that we're going to record all about this concept of psychological flexibility. So we started last episode so this is the second the, the ideal would be that you listen to them all but you don't need to listen to them in any particular order really but you know listening to each of these in this series will help you get a really nice rounded view of this concept psychological flexibility and here's some diverse voices um some experts in this space discuss it and talk about putting this stuff into practice and so today we're going to be talking about putting it into practice in the context of coaching. And my guest in the interview is Dr. Rachel Skews from Goldsmiths, uh, University of London. She's the uh, course director of the Master's in Occupational Psychology and the uh, course director of the new Postgraduate Certificate in Coaching, and I contribute to that course. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that later, and I've had a, a great chat with her about Putting this stuff into practice, and you know why this, and her approach, and, and all the rest of it. Um, but I think what might be useful is to clarify this before we get into that detail. But before we do that, a little bit of news and update. So, if you've listened to the podcast before you have heard me mention our workshop called Sleep 101. Do you remember that, Pilar?
1: Yes, I remember you mentioning it, but you might have to give us more details of what it yeah. entailed.
0: <laughs> I just had that moment of, did I mention it? No, I, I did. not I did, know it, I yes. mentioned it. I did. So I, I ran it uh, again last week in London for a, a client and um, it just reminded me about how how core this topic is um, uh, to people's experience of the workplace. You know, it's a, it's a brief... It's a 90-minute session. It's part of what we call our Wellbeing Essentials series. And each of these are little 90-minute interactive sessions that focus on different aspects of workplace well-being. But the point I wanted to make was that more and more organizations are getting wise to the fact that helping employees get better sleep is a valuable addition to the well-being initiative that they might be running. So um, it was really well received and I had great conversations with the people in the workshop. And uh, one of the most interesting parts of that was busting myths um, that people have about sleep. And we were able to illustrate some of the received wisdom that we hear is actually not very scientific at all and potentially really, really misleading. Can you you share?
1: Sorry, can you share one of those myths? Because I I love uh, I love busting myths.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the, the the myth that as we age, we need less sleep. Mm. Have you heard that? That older people need less sleep.
1: And it's not true. Well,
0: well, it's not well, it's not true. It, it's just that the quality of sleep um can disimprove with age, so we might sleep less in one go. But we then have the opportunity to sleep a little bit later, maybe have a nap and, you know, that way. So uh, older people can find it that they're awake longer in the evening and that they wake up earlier in the morning. It's not because they need less sleep. It's because of a change in their sleep patterns. But they still need the same amount of sleep. Wow. Um, another another one was about, um, the, you know, the average that people should be sleeping, which is a tif- difficult number to, to pin down. But I started at five hours. Uh, the average healthy adult should be getting five hours sleep. And quite a few people thought that was reasonable. (gasps) Really? I thought if I got five hours sleep, I'd be a mess. Mm -hmm. I know I would be. And so, you know, we're talking about quite a bit more than that. On average, Um, you know, between six and eight hours is is a recommendation in that space. And of course, people differ. But if you're going without good quality sleep for a period of time, it is going to impact your performance in the workplace. And that's what I'm trying to get organisations to get wise to. That actually, it is relevant to you um, how well your employees sleep at night. It is you know a personal topic, but also can impact their performance at work, can impact their relationships. Think about how crabby you can be when you haven't had enough sleep. And one of the symptoms of um, sleep disruption is that we can be more prone to risk-taking. And so that could pan out to be quite uh, unhelpful in the workplace as well. So what I'm going to do is put a link to the Wellbeing Essentials courses in the show notes. And you'll see we've got a selection of them there. Each of them is 90 minutes. But the sister organization of where I ran this uh, just the other week has already booked it for their people for January. So it looks like we're onto something there in that organization. I'm looking forward to that. It's a really interesting topic. Good.
1: And if you can't get to one of those workshops, or if your organization does not book one of the workshops, then maybe check out episode 18, (laughs) which is all about the importance of sleep that we covered uh, some time ago now.
0: Yeah, quite a while ago, quite a while. (laughs) So before we go into the uh, interview with Rachel, let's talk a little bit about um, the main topic at hand, which is the use of psychological flexibility skills in a coaching context, which is sometimes called acceptance and commitment coaching. And that's because terminology can trip us up here. So it's useful to be clear on what we mean by these different terms. And I don't want to get super technical at all. But if you can imagine there's a big umbrella term that sits above all of this That's contextual behavioral science. And that's all of the sciences that are about how we behave, looking at it through a contextual lens. How are we in different contexts? And that's quite a broad umbrella. And within that, one example of that is acceptance and commitment therapy. So that's the use of the skills that we're talking about in psychotherapeutic contexts. And then we've got acceptance and commitment coaching, which is the use of the same processes, but in a coaching context, maybe in the workplace. And when I talk about psychological flexibility, one way of looking at this is the outcome. It's what you get by practicing these processes, by putting these skills into practice. The outcome is that you're able to be more psychologically flexible, moving away from a position of psychological inflexibility to flexibility so sometimes practitioners use these terms interchangeably sometimes if you look this up online you'll see a lot of reference to ACT A C T. that's acceptance and commitment therapy but the processes um, that that sit within that are identical we just translate them to make them more accessible and acceptable to people in workplace contexts does that make sense so far
1: Yes, so there's, yes, there, it, it does make sense. <laughs> Do I have any questions at this point?
0: <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the, the different people I work with might use different terminology mm. um, depending on who they're working with. But I thought, let's get that bit clear first. The other thing, and Rachel will elaborate on this because she contributed to it, the evidence base supporting these interventions, such as coaching, is really, really powerful. Um, and, and especially when it comes to coaching, because a lot of the coaching that's out there is. Evidence-free. It's theory-free. It's sort of received wisdom. It's this is how we've been doing it through the years, rather than this is what the evidence demonstrates actually works. So here we've got not just um, a method for coaching that works. We can see the results, but we also know how it works, which is great. And that you know that's the the ideal in science is not just that you get the result, but you understand why. So then that really kind of makes it stand out a little bit from lots of uh, learning and development interventions is th- in that it has a really strong evidence base for it and it also works in a broad range of contexts for a whole range of different topics that could come up um, in a in a coaching conversation.
1: So I don't know if you covered um, this with Rachel but what kind of uh, studies have been carried out because I always think okay that we have the evidence that this works how is this measured is it do people go into organizations and have like one group with this kind of <laughs> of coaching yeah. another group not? what are the kind of studies that absolutely
0: and and Rachel's PhD was all about right. this actually and she elaborates on it a little bit okay. but it, it is a challenge absolutely um Uh, evaluating interventions like this can be a challenge because for a lot of practitioners may not want their work examined in that way. Um, I think one of the main challenges though is that the workplace changes so rapidly you lose people you know they move they they leave the organization it's hard to keep things nice and neat but the the studies that Rachel undertook for her PhD I think well, obviously they're at that standard, but they are really smart in how they were organised and how she managed to retain people and demonstrate the impact of this acceptance and commitment coaching methodology. And so, things you know, if you know this works, it's it's uh, unethical to withhold it. So you might have a waiting group. You know, they're your control, and then later they'll get access to it rather than saying, you you don't get this. You're the control group and you won't get access to something we know is good for people. So there are ways around it, but the complexity of most workplaces means that you really need to be quite pragmatic as you do it. It's not like working in a laboratory. So um, using this in in coaching contexts is all about making an appropriate translation. You know, so we don't talk about therapy um, and we we look for what works uh, in a very pragmatic way. And one of the things that I really like about this whole area is the flexibility, ironically, <laughs> that comes with psychological flexibility. It's not dogmatic at all. There's some principles and they can be interpreted and applied in different ways. And they support each other and, and actually you know, um, practitioners who use the same theoretical model might approach it in quite different ways, but get very similar results because the principles that underline their work are all there. And that, that, that gives you enormous flexibility to make things um, be as acceptable and as accessible to people in their context, in their workplace. And, and, you know, one of the things we'll talk about next time is the principle of mindful focus, And that's something that we often have to translate um, so that it's not uh, mixed up with something either religious or, you know, people feel uncomfortable if you talk about mindfulness sometimes. So often we we rebadge it, we make it more acceptable. And it it takes quite a different approach to a lot of coaching interventions. Um, So maybe traditional cognitive behavioral coaching is about identifying bad thoughts and changing those thoughts and that takes a lot of work and it doesn't stick because of what we've done to our thoughts we've made a strong association between the old thought and the new thought and i'm really really oversimplifying this (laughs) but i just want to demonstrate actually the thing about the acceptance and commitment uh, coaching approach is that the thoughts remain the way they always have but what we're doing is changing the relationship that we have with those thoughts one metaphor I might use is that we're turning the volume down on them, so we can concentrate on what's in front of us, um, what really matters. So instead of struggling with the thoughts, we're actually getting on with the meaningful stuff in life, despite having those thoughts or those emotions or that sort of level of discomfort. And that requires us to pay attention to now uh to, to what's actually going on within us and external to us and in our environment it requires us to be clear on what actually matters to us in our life we would call those values and you know yeah regardless of how uncomfortable we're feeling about a situation we're encouraged to take action that is helpful to us um in the pursuit of a goal and that enables us to keep going to persist so rather than waiting to not have discomfort inside, the emphasis is on selecting what you're going to do and get going with that despite the discomfort that is along for the ride. And that's quite different to most approaches that might emphasize, let's get you comfortable or confident, and then you can take your steps in the right direction.
1: I think that's one of the things that's resonated most when we've looked at this before and in your webinars, I think it was last year already, the, the, the fact that the thoughts are there and, and they are thoughts. Uh, not just that they're, but it just means we always have thoughts and sometimes they're going to be some that uh, maybe we'd rather not have, but hey, we're having them. <laughs> so let's, I, I like that. I like the not stopping stuff because I think that can create extra friction.
0: Mm, absolutely. It it requires energy and effort. And actually what you're doing then is paying attention to battling thoughts yes. rather than paying attention to what's going on around you. And what you want to be doing, you know? And I, I've seen some very powerful demonstrations of that, metaphors and, and imagery. But if, if effectively you are doing all you can to struggle with something inside, then you've got very little left to give to those things that are really important to you in the outside world, like caring for people, focusing on your job, um, advancing your career, whatever it might be. So instead of battling, you give up that battle you stop that struggle and then you pay attention to what's meaningful to you and do that acknowledging there's a bit of discomfort that comes along, but that's not what, you know, what you're taking your direction from. You're, you're taking direction from your values and you're pursuing goals. You're not trying to avoid discomfort. And, um, because of that, you know, we get great results using this kind of approach. In the therapeutic world, you get great results with, um, you know, quite tricky challenges like anxiety and depression and so on. Um, And it's used in social work, it's used in education. And in the world of workplace coaching, it's great for things like confidence and uh, public speaking and dealing with uh, difficult relationships and procrastination. I mean, just a few of the topics I've used it with over the last few years with clients you hey. So let's move on to, to Rachel, because we are going to come back to the topic um, of psychological flexibility several times. But what I'm keen to do is that we emphasize not just the concept, but what does that mean in practice? And I really want to talk to Rachel for some time about um, the application of this stuff in the real world. And as someone who has, as far as I'm aware, the only PhD in this specific application of it, I thought she would be perfect to do it. And of course, she's been on uh, the podcast before. She's someone I know Uh, pretty well. And she's really good at translating this to make it really accessible. Um, She mentions uh, a course that we're both contributing to at Goldsmiths. And that's up and running. We've got students going through that. And that is a postgraduate certificate in coaching that is built around these um, uh, psychological flexibility models. So it's super evidence-based we're working through that at the moment. And she also references a workshop that we're running at January's Division of Occupational Psychology Conference um, that's all about using these methods. So it's aimed at practitioners, but I'll put a link to it. Maybe someone out there is listening who is a, is a psychologist and might come along. Um, but that's just to put those things in context. So without further ado, I'll hand it over to, um, well, to me again, obviously. But <laughs> I'll <laughs> we'll hand it over to the uh, to the interview. And, you know, bearing in mind, it was recorded a little while ago, so I don't sound as bunged up and fluey in the interview. Um, But there we are. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, This has been episode 54, as ever. Thank you for listening. So I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Rachel Skews from Goldsmiths University of London. Again, nice to have you back on the podcast, Rachel. How are you?
2: I'm very well, thank you. And thank you for uh, inviting me back. It's nice to have another one of the chats.
0: Always so, good me, to cool. have people on. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, listeners may be um, tuning in to this first ever episode from their point of view. So let's start by finding out a little bit more about you in case they didn't hear that episode. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Goldsmiths.
2: Okay, so uh, my main role at Goldsmiths is that I run the MSc in Occupational Psychology, and um, I've also been involved in de- designing and developing a very new program in coaching, uh, called, which it currently is a postgraduate certificate in coaching, but um, we're planning on scaling that up to a master's in the next couple of years, which is really exciting because mm-hmm. it's using as its main um kind of bedrock foundation, evidence-based approaches based usually in psychology uh, to coaching and behavior change. Um, So it'll give students a really good sound grounding in kind of practice and theory. Um, So that's my main role at Goldsmiths. I think to introduce myself a little bit more broadly, um, I started off as a consultant. I was a consultant in in various HR contexts um, for about 10 years. And then I went to Goldsmiths and had a bit of a career break, um, did a a master's in occupational psychology, and then uh, did my PhD there, which was in coaching psychology. So um, I'll probably talk a little bit later about some of the evidence that my research has produced around coaching. Um, But yeah, so that's what I've been doing for the last um, six years or so.
0: Fantastic. A great, a great, uh, summary there. And it's glossed over lots of details that I hope to, <laughs> to go into, because I know you've done, you've done a lot of really interesting stuff. Um, we, we, We sort of put this in the diary to talk a little bit about this concept of acceptance and commitment coaching or coaching that has this contextual behavioral science at its heart um, and that sets it apart from maybe other approaches to coaching. Can you give us the, the simplest possible definition of what acceptance and commitment coaching is?
2: Yeah, sorry, I'm having just a little gentle laugh at myself. Uh, you know, it's such a challenge to try and take these things which can be explained in so many different ways and, you know, talking about so many different links with various things and actually distill it down to something very, very simple. Sorry. <laughs> I, think, I think the last few years when, when I've had the opportunity to speak to so many people about it, I kind of feel like I'm getting that, what I think the real crux of the matter is. So here goes what I think we're doing with acceptance and commitment coaching is I think we're really helping people to understand that they might be at a point, uh, like a decision point or a choice point in which they have the option of doing generally one of two things. So they are able to move towards something or they're able to move away from something. So quite often, uh, what I tend to find, in, uh, certainly for myself and for the people I work with, is that you might, be, you might be having issues which are related to making the wrong choice. So deciding that you're not going to do something that you should. For example, I have a bunch of um, research projects that need marking. But I have all these other things that I need to do. And I keep making the choice that I'm not going to mark those papers. Now, at some point, I have to get on and mark the papers. I'm essentially describing my afternoon to you. So I think the crux of acceptance and commitment coaching is that you are doing a whole wealth of other complex things. But that's distilling it down to giving people the ability to notice that there is a decision they are making or that needs to be made. And that can be on varying levels of consciousness. You know, with procrastination, uh, quite often we're making a decision, but we're not, you don't really feel like you're making a decision. You're just kind of not doing something. So it's about bringing that into really clear clarity for somebody and saying, you know, what's the best action that you can take here? Is it that there are things that are genuinely more important? And I'll do the marking later. Or is it that. You're just avoiding and procrastinating, doing something, you know, a piece of work or a task that really does need doing. And, um, you know, it allows people to bring that much more into um, the, the realm of consciousness and to make a much more informed decision around how they move forward.
0: And so it, it, it points to people paying attention to what they're yeah. doing and what they're not doing and and being aware of the decisions that they're able to make when what runs against that? What runs contrary to that is this uh, concept of us operating in automatic pilot when yeah. we're not really focusing on now and we're just doing out of habit.
2: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think there's another. So from a from a broader acceptance and commitment coaching perspective, you know, you've got these six kind of processes that support us making the best decisions and moving forward in the best way. You know, around what do you want to achieve and what's important to you, and what's meaningful to you as a human being, um, as opposed to what do you feel you should do, which again can be they can be very different things. There's lots of things that we do out of this sense of duty, either to an employer or to a client or to a, um, a family member, but it's about consciously deciding whether or not that's the most effective way of moving forward. Um, you know, is it really the thing that you want to achieve or you know, Are you following a path that is really somebody else's path? Um, and so there's quite a lot of work that I might do with people around um, just really clarifying where, where is it that you want to go. Um, we talk about values in acceptance and commitment coaching. So this idea of what brings you meaning and purpose in your life or in your work. And I, I, I speak to lots of people, for example, around careers. You know, making a decision around what they want to do for the rest of their lives. And even yesterday, I was talking to my students about it. You know, what do you want to do with the the rest of your life? You have an incredible opportunity, um, but it's going to depend on what you want. And sometimes people don't know. So a large part of the work you might do with them is helping them to think about what is it that you want? What is it that you want in your life or in your, your career or, you know, in your work that you're doing do you want to stand for um, all that kind of stuff and then starting to help build a plan to how how you're going to get that so some of the other processes we might be working with are relating to what you just said around that awareness so we tend to you we will use some mindfulness techniques we either formal mindfulness practices or just practicing noticing the internal kind of things that are going on the external things that are going on just trying to really practice paying attention to things that we might not normally be paying attention to or we may not have been paying too attention to in the past so the idea on that is if you're in the present moment if you're really tuned into what's going on around you and you're not on that autopilot you're much more likely to notice um, the missteps that you might take uh, and notice opportunities that you might not have noticed before. So it's, there's a lot of that kind of built in. And I think there's something very important about how we think about ourselves. So sometimes we might tell ourselves you know, stories about who we are. Um, we might have a bit of a narrative around who we are. And some of them are really helpful and some of them are not so helpful or they might be outdated. So there's something in there about um, refining those, questioning them, maybe loosening our grip on them a little bit. And I suppose that brings me to the last kind of piece that I wanted to talk about in in an introduction to acceptance and commitment coaching, which is around this idea of um, letting go of, of things that might not be useful to us anymore but allowing them to be part of our journey. So it's almost as though, you know, you carry this, you carry your whole life experience with you. And there's quite a lot of compelling studies that are showing, you know, we don't have a an unlearned function in our human experience. You know, you you have things that happen to you as part of your life, which you don't really have any control over. You know, they could be little things. They could be quite big things. I've just started um, swimming again after years of not swimming, and um, I'm absolutely loving it. But I'm noticing there's some weird behavior in the pool. You know, people can be a little aggressive, <laughs> <laughs> which surprised, You know, So you have these things happen to you, whether you like it or not. And Some people will have very, you know, they could have some really traumatic stuff happen to them. And it gives them experiences it might be thoughts it might be feelings it could be anything that's kind of going on for them internally or externally Uh, it could be anxiety it could be kind of you know in more extreme cases it could be depression it could even be um you know things that are going into the the realm of mental ill health but we don't really have a lot of choice around what we carry with us so part of acceptance and commitment coaching might be noticing some of that and maybe changing the way that we, we relate to it. So again, a lot of the time, people might be pushing stuff away that they can't really get rid of. And it's about helping them to change their relationship and maybe see things in a different way so that they don't expend a lot of energy trying to get rid of things that maybe they can't get rid of. So that's I think that's probably where I would start.
0: Where you'd start? Fantastic. I mean, long, long time listeners to the podcast are possibly saying on the back of that explanation, hold on a minute, that sounds like psychological flexibility. Richard's been talking about this for for tons of episodes. Would it be fair to say that acceptance and commitment coaching is the coaching support mechanism so that people can develop this concept of psychological flexibility?
2: Absolutely. And I really like that way of positioning it, for sure. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely.
0: So they're not two different things. One's the outcome, one's the method. And maybe, you know, the coaching supports people moving towards and and developing uh, these skills we collectively call psychological flexibility. Now, you've gone into the the research and the uh, examine the evidence base and and obviously contributed to that evidence base significantly with your own work. How strong is the evidence base for this approach to coaching compared to other forms of coaching, for example?
2: So the, the, the work that I did, you know, we're working on getting the study published and out there in the, I mean, it's in the public domain already, but um, we're really looking forward to um, having the uh, some journal articles on the back of the work that I did with my my colleague um, uh, Joe Lloyd, who was my supervisor for this research, um, and uh, Frank Bond, who was also involved as well as a, as, a, as a supervisor. So one of the things that we did was we were quite we took a very critical perspective to um, the kind of intervention studies that were already out there. I would say for in as an overall in terms of all of the different ways that there are to coach, um, you know, there are a few standouts in terms of the the evidence base and the support for the different approaches. So, for example, motivational interviewing has got some good studies that support it. Solution-focused coaching and cognitive behavioral coaching both have fairly good and robust studies that support them as well. So, uh, to date, nobody had looked at um, acceptance and commitment um, theory applied to coaching, so we were keen to do that, and we were also keen to do it in a way that was hopefully also going to um, provide a little bit of a, a blueprint to other uh, researchers on what you know how they how we could do a rigorous um, and robust coaching research um, study. So what we did was we used a randomised control uh, trial design. So we had uh, coaches who all volunteered for the um, study and they were randomly allocated to either a group that were going to get coaching while we were collecting data or a group who were going to get coaching after we collected data, which is a very common design called a weightless control drive design. And we had quite uh, decent sized uh, groups for this. And there was about 65 people in each group, which is kind of meaty for a coaching um, Mm. study. Lots of other studies, you know, really, it's quite a struggle. And you know, coaching researchers have published on the problems in in running randomised control trials. So, you know, we were really pleased with um, managing to get a, a quite a good sample. Um, so. We were able to run this randomised control trial, and what that allows you to do is kind of control for all of the other variables that might be impacting on people's outcomes that you're interested in. So we looked at performance, we looked at self-efficacy, so how how you how well you believe you can do things, you know, your kind of belief that you can achieve what you want to achieve. Um, we looked at other attitudinal things, so satisfaction, whether or not people were satisfied in the work, whether or not they felt motivated at work. Um, And we looked at some goal-related outcomes. So we looked at goal-related thinking. So, you know, whether or not you believe you can achieve your goal and whether or not you feel that you can see a path towards achieving your goal. And um, the the other goal related one was uh, a very simple measure of goal attainment, whether or not people felt they were making progress towards their goals. So we had a number of different outcomes and what we found um, is that we got increases or a maintenance effect um, within a, a large proportion of the uh, outcomes that we were interested in. So we found increases in self-efficacy, we increases in well-being, which was fantastic. Uh, we got increases in goal-directed thinking and we got increases in goal attainment. What we got with performance was really interesting. We didn't get an increase, but what we found was a decrease in the control group. so something happened at the organizational level, we think which in that had a detrimental effect on the um, participants in the control group the their kind of work performance, which was not seen in our intervention group so interesting yeah that wasn't what we were expecting um we were expecting to see an increase in performance but no change in the control group performance that's the you know that's what we saw with a lot of the other variables um, but with this one there was a decrease in the control group and a, and a maintenance effect so we still have an effect but um that's one of the things i'd be really keen to to do more research around another interesting thing that we found is that we didn't really get any changes in terms of work satisfaction and work motivation so we weren't really impacting people's um, motivation at work and their kind of views of how satisfied they were in the job but nevertheless we're increasing their well-being so there were some really interesting findings and one of the things that we did was we looked at whether or not psychological flexibility was the reason that these changes were occurring and the data that we have suggests that it was so we were able to statistically analyze that and got quite a clear picture that the reason we were getting the changes in the outcomes that we saw through the coaching is because we were increasing people's psychological flexibility
0: and that's you know, that's good science, isn't it? We're we're not just looking at does something work, but also how does this work? What's the explanation for this intervention? And in this case, it's a kind of coaching.
2: And it's a really common analysis to do in other fields. But in coaching, there's very, very, if any, other studies that have done this. And certainly none that I'm aware of that have done it as rigorously as we did it, you know, mm. within a, a randomized control trial. There are people that have done it with, you know, just asking survey uh, data at one, one time point. Um, but you can't really make the same causal argument, which is what we were really interested in.
0: Absolutely. And of course, there is the um, evidence base that extends f- much further back in time, mm-hmm. emerging from acceptance and commitment therapy, where, where these concepts, these processes, were used in therapeutic settings. So in a sense... The acceptance and commitment coaching is building on that, but looking at the application of this uh, in the workplace, if you like, for, for so, coaching, not therapy.
2: Yeah, and it's been really, you know, these principles have been applied in training, in leadership development, in coaching. Um, and so we're finding that we can use the same set of principles that essentially tell you about how we think and how we can use how we think to behave more effectively. And they're very flexible, you know, so it, it's a wonderful set of principles to have at your fingertips because you can use them in so many different contexts.
0: I think that's the standout for me, why I like in, in, in particular using this approach in coaching is that you can be quite creative, you can be super flexible, um, and they're principles, not rules, um, yeah. so that you can make it really fit for the person that you're sitting with at, um, at a moment in time.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree.
0: So if we think about the coachee, so we've got the evidence, we understand what acceptance and commitment coaching is. If, if I'm a coachee and, and you're going to coach me, what could I expect to discuss with you? What, what would set apart our coaching sessions if they're informed by acceptance and, and, acceptance and commitment theory?
2: Mm, that's a really interesting question. I will do my best to answer it. Um, I think certainly if a coachie is having a conversation with me in terms of how I start my coaching, which I know people might apply this in different ways, and um, people might, um, you know, start at different points. But I tend to like to start my coaching by by really finding out what what does the coachee really care about, and a lot of my coaching is workplace. You know, so I do, um, I really focus on what's going on in people's careers, what's going on in their work life. And it might spill over to other areas of their life, their health, their family, um, the time that they have for doing other things. You know, that's not uncommon. But really, I focus on what is it that you really enjoy about work? Um, What do you want to spend your time doing? What do you want your legacy to be? What do you want to get out of, you know, the career that you have or the career that you would like. So I, I often will start with a really simple exercise. Now, I, I don't know if you've covered this in other podcasts, but um, the one that I really like is, you know, tell me about your perfect day. And it's super simple. Um, you're just essentially asking the coachee to really explore, kind of brainstorm or um, freeform through their perfect day at work. You know, imagine mm. if you had the perfect day at work. You know, what would you be doing? Uh, Who would you be with? What kind of work would you be doing? Maybe what environment would you be in? And people can run through it. Uh, Lots of people go through it sequentially, so they'll start in the morning and, you know, travel through to uh, to when they get home in the evening. Um, Some people will just be kind of throwing bits and pieces into it. So I kind of, what I like to do is I just like to give people a space to really explore that. Um, Because I think it's really useful as well to have the opportunity to really explore that because a lot of people won't have or they won't have done it in that way before. And then what I do, I drop a little challenge to them and I say, I want you to identify maybe two or three, four at the most, um, things that really make that the perfect day. What are the non-negotiables for you? What are the things that really make that the perfect day for you? And they, they label them. Um, and it, it might be something like making a difference. Uh, I did some work with the civil service and there were lots and lots of people who talked about, you know, giving value to, value for money to, to the public, you know. Mm. So different kinds of, I, I term them values, slightly different to how you might think about values in a non-acceptance and commitment context. But they are essentially what really drive people, what kind of give them meaning and purpose. And I think it kind of connects with in the, people's intrinsic motivation. What gets you out of bed in the morning? Um, so for me, I have really strong values around making a difference, um, having an impact on people, helping them. It's not unusual for somebody who you know works in coaching. It's really common when I do my coaching training that... <laughs> There's a, similar, there's a similar set of values in the room. Um, so I like to start there. And I think you get people in a really good frame of mind if you start talking about what matters to them. I think it helps them buy into the coaching process. So even if it's coaching within an organizational context, yeah, I still want to know what makes them tick. I want to know what gets them out of bed in the morning because that's going to help me and them to notice where there are clashes, um, where there are connections, where there's opportunities for them to connect with those things more than they have already. Um, and actually, just connecting with them, even through doing that exercise, can, a, can be a really sort of almost transformational experience, which is wonderful to see. And you're getting a quick win. It's it's fantastic. So I tend to start there. And then from there, we build. We build everything, you know? So... Even the goals that people might have, how do they relate to the things that really matter to you? You know, they're moving you in the right direction. And then as people take, start to kind of work towards their, their goals and start to take action, we're just tweaking and aligning and noticing and practicing noticing whether or not the actions that they're taking are the most helpful ones. Um, whether or not there's something they could do that they've not already thought of. And so it's a a kind of process, it's an ongoing journey together where I might be able to notice things from my perspective and kind of show that to them that they've maybe not seen before.
0: That's one of the aspects that I I really like. It's that working together Mm -hmm. um, rather than the coaches, the All knowledgeable, all powerful person. It's working as a team, and I I would echo your your sentiments there. I I like to start finding out what's really important and meaningful to a coachee, even if they want to actually, especially if they want to jump into action. These are the changes I want to make. Mm. To explore why, what's driving that, and um, whose idea was that in the first place?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think that's it's hugely important, and I am. I tend to refer back to that. I, I, I don't make huge amounts of notes um, as a coach, but I, that I will note that down. Um, I think it's worth saying that I, I feel it's really important that the coachee names the values, you know, so that they give it a name um, because then they own it. So what I tend, I might, you know, they might be coming up with something. They might be um, talking around various different things, and I might try and clarify with them. But ultimately, I want them to label it because then it means more to them. Does that mm-hmm. make sense?
0: <laughs> it, no, it absolutely does. And, you know, as, as we've previously discussed uh, offline, there's, there's more than one way to bring clarity to someone's values. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, a, a discussion and an examination and an iteration of that um, where language is so important is is a sort of common theme there, isn't it? Because words yeah. are so powerful when it Absolutely. comes to these things. And yeah. I, I think from my experience using these approaches, people aren't used to talking about values um, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, but to, you know, in the workplace, they're, they're often talking about their skills or their capability mm-hmm. or their potential. But what makes life meaningful for them, That's that's really quite a different category of thought
2: yeah I think it's I've never had anyone who's who's felt it was an unhelpful conversation. It might have been an unexpected one, mm. but I think most people that I've you know worked with have found it really useful. They've found it really helpful because it clarifies for them it you know, like you're saying sometimes values can be seen as something that's slightly different to what we're talking about here mm. um, but this this is a little bit more. Um, about you as a human being you know what what really matters to you and I always think we spend so much of our time at work how can you not have yourself in there you know how can you not be part of that equation you know it's a uh, most people who are working full-time are working 35 to 40 hours a week um, most of our working uh, sorry waking time so I think it's really important to do something that you care about, because otherwise it can start to make you really ill. You can burn out. Um, so, yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and that clarity of what matters leads onto uh, another conversation, doesn't it, often, which is, well, if that's really important, how, how can you have more of that? Or why are you not doing that? whatever that is. And that can be quite challenging when someone realizes that these are the things I want to emphasize in my life, but I'm kind of doing the opposite right now because I haven't really thought about it or I've got into these habits, Mm -hmm. you know, a really common scenario is family focus But actually, I'm working an 80-hour week. So I'm not living that value. I'm not spending time with the people I care about. In fact, I'm spending time with people I don't particularly care about. I'm I'm going in the opposite direction of something that I think is very important to me.
2: Yeah, and it can just be as simple as having a conversation where you gain that clarity and you see it in a different way. You make connections that you hadn't made before, and, and then you can move forward in a different way.
0: They represent great tools in, in that sense, because, um, I mean, I had this discussion this morning with a, a prospective coachee talking about the power of values, that it's not about, you know, transformational change in your life overnight. In fact, an iterative, slow approach to putting your values into practice can illustrate their impact through small changes through through you know daily manifestations rather than huge um you know e- enormous shows or mm. demonstrations of them so it doesn't have to be uh costly or time-consuming it could be symbolic it could just take a few moments each day
2: yeah 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 absolutely i couldn't agree more
0: So, you know the, the the evidence is there to support this, and you've you've your own research has demonstrated the impact of acceptance and commitment coaching on well-being from a from a positive perspective. And of course, we know that acceptance and commitment therapy can support people across a whole range of contexts, across a whole range of uh, scenarios that they might come to to uh, seek professional help with. You mentioned earlier on. Uh, the new coaching course at goldsmiths which is which is geeking off at the moment what's the rationale for having a coaching course because well a, a quick online search would show you that there are dozens if not hundreds of coaching courses out there
2: yeah and i think it's a bit of a minefield in terms of coaching training which is partly why we wanted to have a have a program that was using contextual behavioral science, drawing very heavily on acceptance and commitment coaching, which was going to have a strong evidence based um, approach and that would offer people uh, coaching training that's, I mean, it's quite specific. So it's coaching that is very psychologically focused and informed, as opposed to, you know, something that's more. Um, from a pure business perspective. So I think I kind of hold my hands up to them. I'm very happy with them positioning our program there. But we're focusing on um, a lot in workplace contexts. So a lot of the research and the the kind of coaching training that we do is focusing on the workplace. Um, I think in terms of what we wanted to achieve, it was around um, teaching people how to do behavior change informed by these principles that we have from contextual behavioral science because that that we know, we know how it works. And so it's helping people to be more effective coaches by using psychological flexibility and, you know, helping people to increase the psychological flexibility and therefore gaining the outcomes that we know, you know, coaches can achieve using that method. But also... For me, I wanted to have a critical element to the, the the program, so that people are not just getting practice, but they're getting an overview of the theory, the other theories that are available, the other theories that are out there, and also thinking about, um, you know, how you might apply coaching. What looking at your own development, um, looking at um, a critical perspective on on coaching as a practice. So there's there's various different elements to it. It's very, um, as as you well know, it's very practically orientated. But what we're hoping is that it's you know people are going to get a really good grounding in the theory. The reason for that, again, unapologetic about the fact that we're doing it that way. Um, I think that if you understand the theory. It's the thing that empowers you most as a practitioner because it future-proofs you. You're not just learning a coaching process that you can only do by rote. What you're doing is you're understanding the mechanics behind it. Um, you're understanding, if I do X, I'm likely to have a knock-on effect to one. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, you are being given a lot of information that you might not you might not otherwise have around how to be a really effective coach so that if you work with a client who you know you're not quite sure what you might do or a standard coaching process might not be um kind of uh uh enough it might not give you enough information on how to really effectively work with that person the principles in uh, in acceptance and commitment coaching mean that you have absolute flexibility around what you're going to do. You know, you can move psychological flexibility. You can you can help people to generate more psychological flexibility in an almost infinite number of ways. So you as a practitioner, you get the theory that you need to to really help you in terms of any situation or scenario that you might find yourself working in. And I think, personally, that's the most empowering thing that you can have as a practitioner
0: and of course we've got the practice element and I'm a, I'm a bit involved in that side of things uh, on the course with the mm-hmm. the practical modules um, yeah, but absolutely. I I really like that that emphasis on future proofing you as opposed mm-hmm. to teaching you some kind of five step process that is you know learned and is used but you don't know how it works and what happens if it stops working for you so that that's great to get the theory and the practice and of course students are going to be coaching uh for real on the course aren't they
2: yeah they are um supervised coaching practice i think is one of the most important elements of of, of learning to do the work that we do um so yeah that's a big part of the course
0: yeah, i'm really looking forward to that I'm running some workshops there and running some some supervision sessions i'm really looking forward to to meeting the students um I'll I'll include links to all of the resources that we've been talking about so far in in the show notes so people can find out more about you your research and also this course at uh, at Goldsmiths and of course I'll I'll reference our earlier discussions on the podcast about psychological flexibility as as skills. Well there was one more thing we were going to mention today which is something else we're doing together which is a workshop we're going to be running at next year's Division of Occupational Psychology Annual conference, DOP 2020. Um, we, we've, um, we've secured a slot at the conference on this very topic.
2: Yeah, really looking forward to this. Um, we, we did something at the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science uh, Global Conference in the summer, and I think that gave us both the appetite to bring this to the Division of Occupational Psychology conference because we got such fantastic feedback when we ran it um, at ACBS, uh, that I was really keen that we, we kind of, I and mean, it's a slightly longer version, I think, than what we did at ACBS. I mm-hmm. think we've got about three hours, which means we can do some really, really cool stuff. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. I think it's going to be really fun. And I think we're going to have a great group of people to work with. So, yeah, can't wait.
0: I'm I'm looking forward to it. We, we should have some psychologists who coach, some psychologists who don't coach. Um, but for, regardless of who wants to come along to the workshop, it's giving them some more tools for the toolkit and a different perspective in addition to the one that they might already hold theoretically yeah. about their own coaching practice. And um, I hope we can demonstrate the flexibility and um, have some fun while we're doing it as well. You know, DOP is normally a, a fun conference, but yeah. hopefully we'll, uh, we'll add to that. So it's on the Wednesday. I'll put a link to the um timetable the agenda for that conference online so if you are listening and you're an occupational psychologist or someone else who attends DOP do have a look out for that um, I think we can both guarantee it will be a good session
2: yeah and I love I love doing those kinds of sessions because you get people who are probably already coaching and you can kind of give them the overview of what acceptance and commitment coaching looks like and it's not that you know you throw away all the other tools you have you bring them to the party you know, so I think it's from the work that I've done training other coaches, they found it really useful and really insightful to give them a sense of how they can make their own coaching practice more, more effective. Mm. So.
0: Yeah, it's, it's going to be great. So that's uh, next January, um, which isn't that far away, actually, considering we're now in October. So, Rachel, I just want to say thank you again for taking the time today to to walk us through uh, acceptance and commitment coaching. I will um, include links back to to you and your work so that the listeners who are interested can find out a little bit more. Um, And it's it's really appreciated that you were able to to join us today. So thank you very much.
2: It was my pleasure.
0: Thanks for downloading this episode of My Pocket Psych. To get in touch with questions and feedback, you can tweet us at worklifepsych or leave us a message on the contact form at www.worklifepsych.com contact. Thanks for listening.